Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What is a whale's favorite artistic medium? Acrylic paint. What do dolphins use to clean? All porpoise cleaner. My guest today is Steve Burton, the Director of Marine Mammal Stranding and Population Assessment at Harbor Branch. His job working with dolphins and whales. In addition to responding to animals in distress, he also gets to conduct population assessments, which is the scientific way of describing going out in the boat to look for dolphins and whales. He's also lived in arguably the three best beach states in the US, California, Hawaii, and now Florida. And it all started by saying yes to a flyer posted on a billboard. In this episode, we chat about the hilarious difference between training dolphins and seals how to identify individual dolphins, and what his field work really looks like. There's a couple of spots where he mentions great ways for you to get involved, so be sure to keep an ear out for those. Please enjoy. Steve, welcome to the Say Wants to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me, Kara. Yeah, so I want to take it back. You grew up in Southern California, beaches. Is this where your love for the ocean and your inspiration to kind of step into ocean sciences came from? Yeah, I'm fortunate. I was uh, born in Southern California, um, Los Angeles County. Um, Grew up in Ventura County. And um, growing up, we always went to the beach on the weekends. So I thank my mom and my dad for that. And um, I just love the ocean and boogie boarding as a little kid and then turned into a surfer and still surfing now and um i just wanted a job with animals and near the ocean so i've been very fortunate all these years yeah that's amazing so before you became the director of stranding and population assessment at harbor branch you had a really cool winding path to get there and initially you it didn't sound like you wanted to or you weren't totally sold on uh, actually ocean sciences. I didn't I hear that you wanted to be a, a doctor. Is that what one of the contemplations? Oh, yeah. yeah, I was just like any kid growing up. You're not really certain what you want to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe be a surgeon, um, a Navy fighter pilot, you know, um, so I really wasn't certain. 
And then I just kind of find my, found my niche when I was in college, you know? Yeah. And I love that story. So you're in college and you applied to an internship in Hawaii and you got it. And it just sounds like so serendipitous that it's like literally a brochure, right? That you have to apply to. And then you get this amazing experience. Could you tell a little bit about that story and that internship that kind of seems very pivotal in your career? Yeah, um, I was uh, very fortunate. Um, I was going to school in Southern California and I saw in the biology department on the bulletin board uh, sign, come spend summer in Hawaii for a marine science program. So I looked it up and I was like, wow, that'd be great to go to University of Hawaii Hilo for the summer and do marine science. So um, I worked with my job and used up all my vacation time for <laughs> that. Yeah. Went out to Hawaii, I'd never been before. And uh, while I was there, we had a marine mammal class that went over to a company called Dolphin Quest, which is like your uh, SeaWorld, um, but it's out in Hawaii. Um, it's uh, dolphins under human care and you get to get in the water with them and uh, uh, pet them and learn all about them and be educated. It's a great company. Um, and swim with dolphins. And um, so I did did a class in marine mammal science for that. And then uh, we went to there. And when we were done with our day of lab at Dolphin Quest, the uh, VP or head of Dolphin Quest came out and said that they were looking for interns for the fall um, because three of their dolphins were going to be giving uh, birth to calves and they needed interns to do baby watches around the clock while the dolphin trainers carried on with their day. So I applied for the uh, internship and I was one of the lucky six that got chosen and uh, worked, you know, different shifts um, around the clock, watching these pregnant dolphins swim around and then give birth and then record their nursing and their respirations. And when my two month internship was done, I, Flew back to California, carrying on with what I was going to be doing. And they called me the very next day and said, hey, why didn't you tell us you wanted to be a dolphin trainer? You didn't have to leave. Oh. <laughs> and, and so I said, well, I wasn't certain. And I didn't know, you know, I was going to approach you guys and see what requirements were needed. And so they talked about it and they offered me a job. So I came back out there about a month later hired as a dolphin trainer, as apprentice. And I worked for that company for over eight years, uh, 40 hours a week, uh, moved my way up the ladder through experience and, um, and learning and everything. So, and that was the stepping stone of how I became a dolphin trainer and then later a sea lion trainer and all that before Harbor Branch, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. That's so amazing, though. That, I feel like that's so many people's dream job. You get to just sit and observe dolphins, and not just any dolphins, but pregnant ones, and then you get to monitor their babies when they come out. That sounds idyllic. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome, and I really thank them for giving me the opportunity. And for those students or kids that want to be a dolphin trainer or a sea lion trainer, um, that's the best way to get into the field is to find out if that marine mammal park does internships or volunteerships. Um, usually you have to be graduated from high school. 
um, and see if you actually even like the job. You know, everybody thinks, oh, my goodness, Dolphin Trainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, doing an internship anywhere, it doesn't have to just be with dolphins. It could be mm-hmm. in a, a veterinarian office or a lawyer's office. It gives you the opportunity or exposure to see if that's the field you really want to be in and what the day-to-day logistics or whatever you want to call it goes on. It gives you a feel. Um, and so that's how what I usually recommend to kids that will reach out to yeah. me or how did you get this job or how do I get that job? <laughs> you know, and it's always graduate from college and it's do an internship. See if you like it because you can always be a volunteer with marine mammals on the side and do a total different job, you know, um, not even related to marine mammals. Um, you don't have to specifically be a dolphin trainer, but if you do, that's the direction to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's a really good point. And that's something I bring up a lot is, you know, if you want some of these jobs, you have to get experience. So, and, that, and that's the best way. Just get, the, try to get the experience. Usually it's an internship or a volunteer opportunity and, and you get your feet wet and you figure out what you do and don't like and make some connections and see where it takes you. I love that. But you, when you started training dolphins, you actually didn't have a degree yet, correct? You were, you earned your degree while you're training dolphins during the day and um, getting your degree in your off hours. Yeah, that's a good question. I had two, um, two year college degrees. I had an AA and liberal arts and an AA and um, environmental science. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when the dream, that's why I thought I was just going back to California to carry on with my education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I couldn't pass up the job. No. So um, I took the job. And again, we're talking the late 90s here. So there wasn't a lot of online classes as there are now. Right. <laughs> um, so especially on the big island of Hawaii, there's only one university. It's on the Hilo side. And I was living on the Kona side, which if you've ever been there, that's a two, two and a half hour drive to the other side of the island um, for school. So um, after my time on the Big Island, I took a job on Oahu, um, you know, the Hono- where Honolulu is in Hawaii, for- to work for another company. And I went back to school at the same time um, to get my uh, bachelor's degree in environmental studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of the change there. And that's where I also got my experience. At that marine park, they had uh, animals... Other than uh, cetaceans, they had dolphins and some uh, uh, whales fall under cetaceans. Um, but they also had pinnipeds, which are going to be your seals and sea lions. So I got exposure to working with um, sea lions and seals. And again, um, uh, Hawaii has the Hawaiian monk seal, but they don't have sea lions that are native to the islands. Their, their seal is. Um, very endangered, but we had a couple of those, and then we had California sea lions on exhibit that we worked with. Um, and then again, like I said, the opportunity to graduate and get a four-year degree was key, and I recommend that for any college student that's trying to break into this field nowadays. It's so competitive that mm-hmm. you need to make sure you have a college degree. Yeah, and that was kind of something we talked a little bit about um, before we started recording is that your degree actually isn't in marine biology, it's in environmental science, right? Yeah, and that's that's the um, neat thing in this field is, you know, um, people think you're a marine biologist because you're in a marine biology world, but I'm mainly focusing on dolphins and whales. And so um, I really liked environmental studies, um, the kind of the whole aspect of earth and environmental law and policy 
um, and rules conservation. So that's why I went and got my bachelor's degree in that field of thing. And then when I came to Harbor Branch, one of the perks here was um, you know, uh, being a staff employee, uh, they'll pay for a couple of classes a semester for you to increase your education. So um, I was able to go while working here at nighttime, I would go and um, I got my master's degree in environmental science. Um, FAU used to have an environmental studies uh, program, but over the years it got morphed into the environmental science. So well, my degree is Master's of Science. It's an emphasis in environmental science. But again, I've been here almost 12 years and I was a dolphin trainer, sea lion trainer for 13. I've got 25 years experience working with dolphins and whales over the years. So, and that's what we're really looking for in a stranding situation is animal behavior and how to keep that animal calm. Um, especially during rescues or transports or strandings, mm -hmm. handling the animal. So it's not necessarily a complete marine biology degree to do that. Right. And I think that's where the neat thing about being a dolphin trainer for 12, 13 years, 40 hours a week plus, it, it, you know behavior. You get to learn that behavior mm -hmm. um, and watch for how certain animals' behavior will change in stressful situations or non-stressful. Um, how do they act when they're pregnant? <laughs> right. You know, a little different, you know. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now, I'm curious, when you're training the dolphins versus seal sea lions, was there a huge difference? Like, in I'm sure individuals of the species, right? Individual dolphins and indi individual seals and sea lions had their own personalities, right? But was there like a huge difference between training each species? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, there are because the dolphins can't really leave the water and follow you when you walk away. Mm. <laughs> and the seals and sea lions can. <laughs> Whether it's a seal, um, and for those that don't know, uh, seals, uh, when they're on land, move on their stomachs. So they're like an inchworm, but they can move fast. <laughs> um, and then sea lions, uh, when they're on land, walk on all fours of uh, mm -hmm. their uh, flippers. And so they're faster than seals. <laughs> uh, so it's like a wet, both of those seal sea lions are having like wet dogs. So uh, when you're done with the session, you need to make sure that you're out of their environment um, for a seal or sea lion. <laughs> Otherwise, they could come for you, not come for you, so to speak. But you're still in their environment. Whereas even with a dolphin, you exit the water and you tell the dolphin sessions over, uh, they just swim away. And again, you'll tell right. a seal on our seal sessions over. It's your free time now. Um, but you get, you just have to be aware of the differences in the different environments. Was that learned from experience? Did you have a seal or sea lion chase you out the door? <laughs> no comment. No. <laughs> Maybe once or twice, and that's just um, trainer error, not paying attention. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe turn the back on the animal when you shouldn't have. Um, yeah. And, uh, learning curve. That's funny. It, 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 you know, learning experience. So nothing bad happened. Um, yeah. But again, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. 
So making this jump to Harbor Branch, I'm really curious about this because it seems like you just have this dream situation in Hawaii. You're training amazing animals. You have your degree already and you're living in Hawaii. And not that I love Florida. I live in Florida. I'm from Florida. It's a wonderful place. However, does seem like um, a very big transition. So what prompted that? Oh, that's a good question too. Yeah, I get that a lot because, um, you know, growing up in Southern California and then Hawaii and then to Florida, I guess I've, for me, I've lived in the three best states with beaches um, and mm -hmm. surf. I would rank, you know, Hawaii, California, then Florida, in my opinion. Um, but as you get older in the marine park industry, uh, you tend to um, um, move over to rescue and rehab. So just with your experience, um, instead of just continuing to do dolphin interaction programs or if you're a show trainer, you know, not everybody, but most of us kind of move on and um, into another field. So I was doing a few rescue stuff in Hawaii, but not that many opportunities. Um, and I was offered a position here um, to come in to be the stranding coordinator 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the perks out, outweighed everything from Hawaii, you know. Um, yeah. and so sometimes, um, you know, jo jobs and everything, life, you move around, especially in this marine field. You go where the jobs are and the opportunities. Um, and so that's what brought me here to Florida, and I'm thankful for it. And, um, you know, uh, great. I've got a great job, great team. Uh, I met my wife here. <laughs> so things happen for a reason. Absolutely. Very cool. So I want to talk about stranding, and I think feel like we could talk a long time about that. But I'm really curious about the second half of your title, this population assessment part of your title at Harbor Branch. What exactly does that mean? And what do, what do you do in order to assess the population of these animals that you're looking for? So to go out to work with marine mammals in our area and any area, actually, uh, dolphins and whales are protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. It's been revised a couple times, and that's to eliminate harassment of them to kind of give them the laws and protections. So for the common person out on the water, let's say here in Florida, you need to stay 50 yards away from the dolphins on your boat, um, give them their space. Um, whales offshore, um, we do get humpbacks in the winter. I'll talk about that with population too, but uh, you need to stay 100 yards away from them. And then we have the endangered North Atlantic right whale that comes down in the winter as well. You need to stay 500 yards away from them. So. Where I'm going with this is that we have a couple permits here that we have to apply for through uh, National Marine Fisheries or NOAA um, that allows us to do the straining part, touch a dolphin or whale. Um, so we have a permit that and have to renew that every three years. And then for the population assessment side, basically we have a five-year permit and we have, we got the new one. It's uh, called a letter of confirmation in June of this year. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to go on the Indian River Lagoon. Um, for those that you don't know that, um, it's on the east coast of Florida. Um, and our area that we survey is the Atlantic bottlenose dolphins in the Indian River Lagoon. 
from uh, Sebastian Inlet in the north to Jupiter Inlet in the south. And uh, once a month, it takes us four days with one boat to survey the area. Mm -hmm. um, due to our permit, um, we photograph the dolphin fins. Mm -hmm. And basically, we're trying to figure out who's who, um, who's mom, who's calf. Um, and then um, we put this in a database and we can track that. I believe we have over 189 individual dolphins in our catalog since June. Um, and we tell the dolphins apart by their dorsal fins. So just like as humans, um, we tell each other apart, mainly for our fingerprints on your thumb or your hand. Um, but for dolphins, we tell them apart by the ridges on the back of their dorsal fins or the front. So we take a photograph of that and put it in our database. And this way we can track, um, if you want to call it cradle to the grave, um, we can put in our database when animals were born um, and guesstimate, hey, this is a calf of this season because of its size. We know it was born in 2021. And let's say 20, 25 years from now, if our stranding department picks up that carcass and that dolphin's had a full life or its life was cut short for some reason unknown or and it comes into our necropsy lab, we can complete the lifespan of that dolphin and track it. And then for offshore in the same locations, uh, Sebastian Inlet to um, Jupiter Inlet, we take a 24-foot rib boat with two outboard engines out to the Atlantic Ocean, and we have nine species of cetaceans. As I mentioned earlier, that's uh, where dolphins and whales fall under is their uh, terminologies, their cetaceans. Um, and so that means um, we pick nine species that should be seen in Florida sometime during the year in our home area. So for us, um, Whale-wise, we have humpback whales on our list. Um, they're here in the wintertime, um, migrating down to the Caribbean, um, from the North Atlantic down to the Caribbean to go make babies or have babies. Um, and then we also have several different dolphin species. For example, Atlantic bottlenose dolphins are on there, um, spotted dolphins, rough-toothed dolphins, pilot whales. Um, and so our goal for that is to document those individual animals as well, put them in our database, and then we collaborate not only with the Indian River Lagoon dolphin info as well, but with scientists up and down the Atlantic seaboard to see if they have those animals in their database too. So you can kind of track, hey, is this animal moving around? Have you seen it before? Um, or is it just a home area? And then again, um, if one of these unique species of animals, say, i.e. a pilot whale, if it was in our database and it's stranded, we could say, hey, we saw that animal three years ago. This is what its condition was through photographs compared to now on why it's stranded on the beach. So hopefully I answered that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was really fascinating. It's really interesting. So so for listeners, Indian River Lagoon, like you mentioned, is a huge body of water on the eastern east coast of Florida. And all that's separating the Indian River Lagoon from the ocean in many cases is like a very narrow strip of land. 
um, like a narrow meaning, you know, maybe a mile, a bit at the widest. Um, yeah. So it's 156 miles, which is a really big area for you to cover. And you said it takes four days. Are you, how often are you going out to do these assessments? That's a good question. Our, um, our home range is about 70 miles um, from point A to point B. And mm -hmm. so we do what are considered, our work needs to scientifically needs to be repeated. Mm -hmm. So we have created uh, what we call transect lines. Mm -hmm. We've input, uh, we did that on the computer that crisscrosses the Indian River Lagoon from um, point, uh, one point to the other. Uh, zigzagging, um, dodging spoil islands and sandbars. <laughs> and so one month we do what we consider an A-track. And the, the next month we do the opposite. So you flip-flop that zigzag to the opposite side, and we call that a B-track. And we flip that all year round, and then the following year we'll flip it again. Okay. So and that way we're not just staying on the transect. Oh, I see a dolphin way away from there. I'm not going to go take his picture because he's not on this line, but we need to be able to follow that transect. And if we do see a dolphin off the line, we will go document it. We input its GPS and location. Uh, we do in what we consider environmentals where we put a YSI meter mm -hmm. into the water. We check water temperature, uh, dissolved oxygen, and the pH, um, and that gets inputted with that dolphin sighting on our database. So if there's somebody interested out there, a scientist that's, hey, where are you seeing dolphins now? Um, and what's the water quality like at that location? Um, we can at least give that information to that scientist that's looking for that. Realizing that dolphins move, uh, they don't stay in one place. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but at least when we cited them, here's where it was. And then we also document what behavior was that animal doing? Was it socializing with other dolphins? Was it foraging? Um, for those that don't know what that means, that means it was hunting. Did it collect fish? Did we see it eat fish? Um, and if it is foraging and collecting fish, we will take photographs and hopefully try to figure out what fish it's eating at that time. Yeah. Um, we'll also track if there's any boats around, if the animals are avoiding boats or playing with boats <laughs> um, as well. So we're doing the behavior aspect as well, you know, because at times, you know, dolphins are like, I guess, little kids. <laughs> they can easily get distracted at times and, um, you know, they may be socializing or foraging, but all of a sudden this beautiful big boat comes down the ICW or the intercoastal waterway, which is about 13 feet deep down the middle of the IRL. It's for boats to safely navigate uh, down the Indian River Lagoon without hitting spoil islands. The dolphin, we'll see the dolphins foraging and then just take off and they want to ride the boat wake <laughs> of that <laughs> boat behind it. So, you know, like I said, they're like little kids, tension span, Ooh, you know, um, <laughs> But again, so that's the photo ID aspect on that and what we're yeah. doing. So, that's why so, so you're going out once a month to look, to do your population assessment. So to look for and observe dolphins. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it takes us, yeah. If we use one boat with our staff, uh, we'll do one segment one day and check that off. And then it'll take us, 
we've broken down our zone of the Indian River Lagoon um, from, like I said, one route is Sebastian back to Harbor Branch. It takes all day. So that's checkbox one. Um, the next route is from Stewart from the south back to Harbor Branch. So we get that area. Then we do from Stewart to Jupiter. So that's third. And then we do Stewart to the Forks. And the Forks, for those that don't know it, is the St. Lucie River. And that um, deposits in the Indian River Lagoon by St. Lucie Inlet. It's got a north and a south fork. And we get dolphins in there as well. So that takes four days. And then for offshore, we're doing a random genera generator um, uh, transect where the computer picks our lines for us. And we follow that transect out to about 20 nautical miles to 30 nautical miles offshore. And we're just looking to see what species we have off that line. Mm -hmm. um, and so that takes us two days, um, typically. Again, it just depends on weather. If we don't finish the whole route, it doesn't count as a full route. Um, mm -hmm. It counts as what we consider opportunistic. And we'll have to repeat that. Um, so we need to make sure that we finish each route. So that means, you know, with winter time here, sun doesn't come up till about 6.45 Florida time. It's get dark about 5.30. And when all this stuff, straining and population assessment, human safety comes first. So we will launch right at uh, dawn when the sun's coming up. And we try to get back to base before it's dark. So, um, Obviously, summer, that's not an issue, um, but in summertime right. here in Florida, we deal with other issues, i.e., well, year-round sea state waves offshore, but for the Indian River Lagoon or offshore, we're always worried about thunder and lightning with our uh, summer storms. So we're always checking our <laughs> weather radar, and we have a lot of safety um, gear on our boats. Everybody wears a life jacket offshore um, EPIRPs. Every passenger has a device on their life jacket. So if you fall overboard, um, it notifies the Coast Guard immediately. And even our boat has its own EPIRP. So safety comes first. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Other nature, you gotta watch out for her. <laughs> yes, yes. And thunderstorms, it's, you know, I grew up here and I'm still amazed at how they can just seriously pop out of nowhere. And if you're offshore and then you only have so many options to come in, right? There's only so many inlets and they're not close. No, they're so. not close. <laughs> <laughs> so to try to outrun a storm offshore, I've done it, um, but usually you're running into another storm. So it's, it's, uh, it can get a little dicey out there. Yeah, we had that once this summer. Um, we were on a pod of, um, on a group of Atlantic spotted, spotted dolphins, which are amazing um, animals. And um, again, we were watching the weather radar on our boat and had to call in because we were 18 miles offshore and um, not off Fort Pierce Inlet. We were more north off Sebastian Inlet and basically had to call, call it for the day and race in full speed. And we just missed the thunderstorm. <laughs> um, getting into the marina. Um, so again, it's a, it's a challenge during summertime here in Florida, but like I said, safety first. And that's why it's neat having the weather radar, satellite phones. 
Oh yeah, the technology for it today is amazing, especially yeah. the radars, and you can kind of watch them pop up and where they're moving. And you're like, well, pay attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. So you mentioned earlier that you know we're supposed to keep our distance from these animals, which makes sense. We want to let wild animals be wild. So it was like 50 yards from dolphins, 100 yards from whales, except for the right whale, which was 500 yards. I'm really curious. Is that just because it's endangered? Yeah, the North Atlantic right whale is one of the most endangered marine mammal in the United States. Hmm. There's less than uh, 350 of them remaining. Oh um, so that's why they have that 500-yard rule. Sperm whales are also critically endangered. They also have the 500-yard rule. Um, but talking about North Atlantic right whales, they were their name is because they were easily um, hunted in the early you know in the 1700s 1800s early 1900s um, they were the right whale for hunters to catch mm -hmm. um, they were close to shore they floated well once killed um, and so unfortunately um, they haven't come back from their numbers there's a lot of rules and regulations and with marine mammals the maternal aspect is like a, um, it takes a long time. They, you know, uh, they put a lot of time and energy to have the fetus. Um, then the calf lives with them for a year, you know, after being born and then moves on. But then the mom possibly doesn't have another kid for three to five years, if that, you know. So everyone is special and needs to be protected. Um, they're unique to Florida because they do live in the North Atlantic. Um, they go up into Canada, they feed during the summer. And then the moms come down to the Georgia, Florida to give birth. And uh, they're very close to shore. In fact, um, we're getting whale alerts over the last couple of weeks. I believe there's already been two calves born this season. So that's great yeah. news. Um, and there's also whale alerts that they're just north. There's um, aerial surveys. Again, these animals are protected. So there's groups that are um, not only NOAA flies a plane for aerial surveys to look for them and to warn mariners, uh, but also um, Clearwater Aquarium works with Sea to Shore, and they have a plane that also flies transects offshore to look for the whales. So there's a few adults coming down um, just north of Georgia and Florida. So the threats for North Atlantic right whales, um, because you can't hunt a marine mammal anymore in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, they're protected by law unless you're um, a Native American and you have a permit for that. There's some groups, tribes that still have that opportunity, but the rest of us don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, their number one threats is uh, boat strikes mm -hmm. and entanglement issues. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the challenge for right whales. They, they don't have a dorsal fin. They're hard to see. They're like a floating log at sea. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they do have unique um, exhale. Um, they're a baleen whale. That means they have two blowholes. And if you're a tooth whale, you have one blowhole. So the best way to explain that is a dolphin is part of the tooth whale family. They just have one blowhole on the top of their head. Mm -hmm. And a baleen whale is a filter feeder. 
Um, if you ever seen Finding Nemo, <laughs> um, but they have two blowholes on top of their heads. So, and different whales would have different kind of type of the exhale looks different. So, uh, for example, on a humpback whale, it'll just you know exhale up to you know, two, but on a North Atlantic right whale, it comes out like a V shape. So one breath, the air will come out, you know, the left, if you want to say left and right nostril, blowhole, it comes out like a V. So that's how you can tell if you saw a right whale um, or not here in Florida. And then the hard part for everybody is, you know, you have to realize that there's less than 350 right whales and possibly only up to 10 to 20 of the females are coming to Florida. <laughs> so when you look offshore, you go, I don't see any whales. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to find them. You know, and the news will right. put it up there. Hey, uh, Mariners, a right whale was spotted in this area. Please slow down. Um, keep your eyes open. And if you see it, please report it to uh, VHF 16 or the Coast Guard mm -hmm. so that uh, we can keep a lookout for them, especially since a lot of these females are here to give birth to their calf and then nurse their young for a month or two before heading back up to the North Atlantic to go feed, you know. Um, so it's kind of their calving grounds. You mentioned both strikes and entanglement are kind of the main threats they're facing. So when you say boat strikes, though, are they like personal craft, like small boats, or are these kind of like the big shipping containers that are that would do the damage to hurt them? It can be... All, all of above. All of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, earlier this year, a uh, fishing boat, um, I don't know the size, coming into, uh, I believe, St. Augustine. You guys can Google it and get more of the story than I know. Um, but unfortunately, um, at dusk, uh, earlier this past season of this year, um, accidentally struck a mom and calf. Um, oh, no. Killing the calf. Yeah. Drop wounds. Um, so again, it can be any size. So that's why most places when right whales are seen, um, they'll put a, a slow down, a reduced speed for that area um, to, and they'll emphasize on the radio channel 16 to be aware, slow down, give them space, you know, and people aren't actively going out there to hit the whales. It's just an accident. Um, right. Of course. Yeah. You know, uh, but just we just got to do our best to keep our eyes open. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of leads me a little bit into the second half of your job is uh, stranding. So how often are you getting calls for stranding and what type of animals do you go out? Is it strictly cetaceans? Yeah, it's strictly cetaceans. However, um, we have stranding partners throughout Florida. So we work together with uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife. We typically just call them FWC. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier that way, just like they call us Harbor Branch. <laughs> right. And um, if they need help with manatees, uh, we will assist them under their guidance and underneath their permits. And they help us with cetaceans, so we help them. But our main focus is dolphins and whales. If we see a manatee injured or needs help while we're doing surveys or strainings, we call it in for fish and wildlife input. And then sea turtles as well. 
we all do the same thing. If we see an injured sea turtle, we'll call it in to fish and wildlife. And then once given permission, we can assist in that part. Strandings, to answer your question there, are variable. Dolphins and whales um, don't go off any timeline, you know, Monday through Friday or weekends <laughs> or holidays, eight to five. Um, typically, we get more sightings on weekends or holidays because there's more people out in the environment. They're out there. On average, we get a call about a dolphin or whale, every, or mainly dolphins. It could be up to every four days. And mm. that isn't it, a dolphin straining every four days. That means somebody's seen something and they've mm. called it into us. So the dolphin could just be doing normal dolphin things, but somebody thought there was something wrong with it. Um, they saw it in shallow water on its side. Um, we never take it as cry wolf. I'll always send a staff member to look mm-hmm. and clear that animal. Um, and then we just tell the person, oh, that we found the dolphin. He's just hunting in very shallow water. It's low tide and he's all good. We checked his behavior. And then we write up an incident report for that. And the public thanks us and we thank them as well because we're not – on the water 24 seven, you know, we're in our offices, kind of like firemen or firewomen, you know, uh, making sure all our gear is ready. We're inputting photo ID data, we're cleaning boats, keeping gear ready, um, all that good stuff. Um, And so we kind of wait for that hotline call to come in. Um, But on average, um, we average of taking a dolphin or a stranded dolphin or a small whale, maybe 10 to 15 per year. And okay. either that's a, a live animal that's stranded or um, washed up dead already and we collected it and did a necropsy on it. Or it was an entangled dolphin that we worked together with other agencies to disentangle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we would consider a take and goes in our logs as we touched that animal or handled it. Whereas my incident reports are as we kept our distance, we didn't touch it, but we did work. <laughs> gotcha. So at Harbor Branch, what, what, how does that work? I know you have quite a range. Where does your stranding network cover? And then how would it work for, you know, you get the call, like who, who gives you the call? Is it actually the public or is it actually going through National Fish and Wildlife and they call you to kind of coordinate the whole thing? Well, as mentioned, our stranding area is the same area that we cover in our photo ID. So um, we purposely made the, the permit for the population assessment to mimic our stranding area so we know who the animals were. Um, and if one was entangled, and we had a history of that animal, we could go, hey, this animal's seen mainly in the northern area of our um, surveys, let's say towards Sebastian Inlet. And that way, if we needed to find it, um, we could put all our resources in the north instead of trying to look all over for it. So tracking its home range. Um, The other part of the question, I'm sorry, uh, was, uh, what does it look like when you actually get the call? Oh, how do we get the calls? Um, yeah. t- typically, um, either somebody got my phone number off Google and <laughs> has heard me on your podcast in the future, <laughs> or um, 
they Googled it because they didn't know who to call and just put, you know, and they'll see that I've given a presentation somewhere or one of my staff, but they see my cell phone number for work and they'll call me. Number two, they'll either call Harbor Branch, um, the receptionist will get the call, but, or um, there's a dial, there's an app called Dolphin and Will 911, and that's free. Um, it's an app from National Marine Fisheries, and you can get it on your iPhone or Android device. Again, that's Dolphin and Whale 911, and that works for the whole United States, I believe. So if you see something, you can take a photo and it puts a GPS stamp on it, and then you hit send on the app, and that goes directly to National Marine Fisheries, and then their operator would call the group that's nearest there. Or for Florida here, um, most of the calls get directed to Florida Fish and Wildlife, and for those that are listening here in Florida, that number is 888-404-3922. And I'll say it again, 888-404-3922. And that number, if you call that, if you think you see a dolphin, a whale, or a manatee in distress, there's an operator that will pick up or, and a research biologist for after hours. You can tell them what you saw, how many, was the animal alive, dead, where you were, and they will contact the stranding group in Florida that's near there that can respond. And so that's how we get most of our calls. Uh, we have that number on our marine mammal ambulance. I give that out to most um, presentations that I do um, because then we have a direct point of contact. And so in Florida, from the Panhandle on the west coast of Florida, all the way down to the Keys, and then back up the eastern coast up to the Georgia borderline. There's about 13 to 14 straining groups, and we're one of them. And so we each have our permitted area that we're responsible and to look after for strandings. Mm -hmm. um, and then if any of our partners in the state of Florida need help, uh, they know they can reach out to my team and resources and I'll send staff to their side of the state to give them extra help. And so, yes, we have our home range that we do day to daily or every you know, 365 days of the year. But we always get requests to help our friends north, south and west of us <laughs> since we're yeah. on the East Coast. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm curious, what what happens once you get this stranded animal? Like, say it's alive. Do, is there a research or excuse me, a rehab facility at Harbor Branch or are you transporting this animal to a different facility? It depends on the species of animal that's stranded. So we have a marine mammal veterinarian and that um, she will do a full body assessment and diagnostics on the animal. It also depends on the species. Certain animals uh, do well in rehab and certain animals over, you know, 50 years of animals in human care, uh, cetaceans that is, don't do well. Um, and mm. so um, the most humane thing to do, again, is to put that animal down if it mm. doesn't do well in rehab or it's not doing well at all. And again, most of the time when these animals strand on the beach, they did so for a reason. There's something going on with them. Otherwise, they'd be swimming offshore just doing dolphin and whale things. Right. Um, sort of like us. We only go to the hospital if we're in critical care 
or need, I should say. Uh, we go to the doctors when we're not feeling well. Um, we have that luxury. <laughs> Dolphins and whales, if they're not feeling well, just have to put up with it out there. Um, and at some point, the illness will beat them at some point, depending on their... Right. Uh, and that brings up a point that we kind of talked about before we started recording, was that if listeners see a stranded dolphin or whale, it's something that um, it is a sign for help or something that is wrong. There is something wrong with them. So don't try to push them back out into the water. Yes, that's that's really important. The best thing to do is call the hotline. So if you're not in Florida, look to your state, i.e., let's say California, Oregon, Washington, or any of the Gulf states along the coast, uh, uh, up and down the eastern seaboard. seaboard. Um, there's plenty of stranding groups or groups that respond to marine mammals. So please call the hotline first. Get a, a trained personnel to that animal so that it can be properly looked at and it may get released back out of the wild right there or it may get transported to rehab and that was one of your questions on what do we do other than um, harbor ranch doesn't do rehab but there's some great places here in florida um, uh, that do do rehab and we will work with our stranding partners and we have a specially designed marine mammal ambulance that can transport small marine mammals, i.e. pilot whales or smaller, to a rehab facility um, so that the staff there can um, hopefully rehab that animal and then at some point uh, release it back into the wild if it can be. And those decisions- so you, don't have a, you don't have a trailer behind a pickup truck with like a tarp type thing and like you're riding on it, spraying your whale down like free willy. No, you don't. <laughs> no, we have a huge 40 to 50 foot quad cab international <laughs> truck. Um, it's air conditioned. It's got air conditioning in there for summer. It's got different light colors. So it's not blare at nighttime. We've got like a red surgical lights on it. So it keeps the light down on the animal to eliminate stress. It's got a crane to lift them up. And yeah, how do you get. Like if this animal strands on a beach, how do you get it off the beach and into your truck? Teamwork. <laughs> oh it, my gosh. And it depends. Okay. So we're talking animals that weigh 2000 pounds or less. So, okay. um, and again, that's the animals that you could possibly rehab and get off the beach to a rehab facility. But even then, if you've got one that size and it expires, you have some options to get it off the beach, which is a, uh, putting it in a stretcher and we slowly hand carry it off the beach. Oh my gosh. Um, or if we can't do that and the animal's expired, we'll do a, what's called a field necropsy mm -hmm. where we're out in the elements on the beach. We'll do a, uh, this is when the animal's expired. Um, we'll get all our tissue, cut it up, get all its tissue samples, try to find a cause of death of why this animal stranded. And, and depending on if it's sea turtle season or not uh, for nesting here in Florida, which is the majority of summertime. Um, if it's not nesting time, we can dig a big hole and bury that carcass there. If not, we will have a boat tow the carcass back off to shore. And mm. Again, these are all uh, by permission by Noah. We can't just do it on our own. But the majority of the time is the carcass is taken off the beach, brought back to Harbor Branch so we can collect scientific data from the tissues, the species, 
um, and try to find the cause of death. Why did that animal strain? There are certain species of animals that the only time a scientist will get to see them is when they strand. <laughs> so oh. for example, beaked whales. Um, beaked whales are very elusive. They're a deep water animal found way offshore, but every two to three years on average, if I look back in our 30 years of straining data here at Harbor Branch, we get a beaked whale, one of five species in our area of beaked whales will show up about every three to four years, up washed up dead on our beaches. And, you know, they're very elusive. They're skittish animals when they're offshore. And so that's the only time you're really going to get an opportunity to look at that species. And um, so it's really important to do have stranding groups that can get the samples from these elusive animals that you don't see very often. Yeah. Now you mentioned for pilot whales, it was entanglements and um, boat strikes were their primary sources of why they would strand. Is that the case for all of the mammals that the marine mammals that you work with, or are there some? Is there a different cause that's like ranks higher? Well, just to clarify, I mentioned that for the North Atlantic right whales. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, pilot whales obviously um, could be entanglements. Um, the pilot whales are unique animal species. They're very very social, mm -hmm. so typically you'll see them in what we consider. Our, a mass straining, which is more than two animals straining. Mm -hmm. um, and so every few years or so in Florida, we will have somewhere where a group of pilot whales, five or more, come in and strand. And what NOAA, National Marine Fisheries, and other scientists have found out, that is if you can figure out which is the sick animal of that pilot whale group and take it away from the other ones that could be deemed healthy by the veterinarians, you can maybe refloat the other ones and get them back out to sea so they can mm. be away from that sick animal, take the sick one away from them. Um, because so again, they kind of strand and is, is like commiseration. Yeah, basically. Mm. So. That's, that's interesting. Actually, why are they called pilot whales? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure about that. That's a good question. I've got some homework to do now. <laughs> no, that's good. I like to learn stuff. So that's pretty cool. I, I never had anybody ask me that before. <laughs> I'm just sitting here. I'm like, it's kind of a unique name. Um, but for other marine mammals, I mean, pilot whales, that's really unique and kind of amazing that like they'll kind of commiserate with the sick one and strand with them, or maybe they're just kind of looking after him yeah. or, or her. Now, if with the other marine mammals, again, like what do you have a primary a usual cause of stranding, or is it just kind of like a myriad of different things? You know, in the in the necropsy lab, which is run by our marine mammal vet, you know, a typical stuff is just old age. Yeah. Uh, organs That's are the broken. best kind, right? Yeah, organs are broken, breaking, you know, breaking down from old age or disease. Um, you know. Entanglement issues, as I mentioned, um, not necessarily boat strikes with dolphins. Manatees, um, it's the trauma from the boat, not necessarily the prop. It's just the full force of a boat hitting a right. marine mammal at the surface could break ribs and then puncture lungs. You don't mm -hmm. seem to think of that, just the impact of the force. Right. Um, the other things is, you know, lack of food 
Um, for example, there is a UME of the manatees right now. There's a lack of seagrass is what they eat. Well, if you think about that, lack of seagrass means there's lack of places where the fish can hide. So do the dolphins have an issue later down the line because there's less fish for them in the river? It's water quality issues. It's all um, one issue, pollution, marine debris. And that's the neat thing about Harbor Branch is while you're just talking to me today about dolphins and whales, my team is just one small team at Harbor Branch that's actually celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. But there's all these uh, PhD faculty and staff with grad students that are working on things that all pertain to the Indian River Lagoon and the oceans for, you know, ocean science. Um, It's all interrelated. You know, there's people working on coral reefs, uh, seagrass, water quality, plastic, marine debris. Uh, I I could go on and on and on. Yes, I know. And I'm excited. I I chatted with um, Jim Sullivan and he kind of touched on just a couple of the amazing projects. And I'm really excited about this whole series with Harbor Branch. I get to chat with Jim, who did, was like kind of over and ar- overarching and chat with you, yeah. the marine mammal population and stranding. And then I get to talk to a couple other Harbor Branch um, professionals that are doing amazing work. And I'm so excited to have like be able to feature that a little bit because there is so much with the aquaculture and the coral reefs, like you mentioned. And it has with the 50 years, it has such a rich history. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's a lot of really great work, and I really appreciate what you're doing locally with our dolphins and our whales, and I've learned a lot chatting with you. It's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed talking to you, too, today. Yeah, so I have a couple of questions that I like to ask each guest, and one of them is, what is your favorite sea creature and why? Oh, wow. Oh, well, again, um, Dolphins, obviously, um, growing up, like I mentioned earlier in the beginning of this interview, um, uh, growing up surfing, um, the dolphins would be in Ventura. Sometimes uh, you'd see them swim past us, or if you were fortunate, um, sometimes they'd ride the waves. Um, so obviously dolphins, but my favorite sea creature is humpback whales. Um, I think that's my living in Hawaii um, I just love the wintertime knowing that, you know, come November, December, they were going to be showing up and uh, you could see them breaching offshore, tail slapping really close to shore in Hawaii. I like their white pectoral flippers. Um, and I also liked, um, dive, for those that don't know, when you go underneath the wave surfing to get underneath it, to get on the other side of it, not riding the wave, but trying to swim out, we call it duck diving. But uh, and, mm-hmm. and when the whales are there and you go underwater, you can hear the humpbacks talking to each other in Hawaii during the season. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds like they're Chewbacca from Star Wars. I will not make the sound <laughs> for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> But, uh, they, you know, they make a lot of grunts, grunting noises and their songs. And I just always thought that was cool while you're waiting for the next set to come through to put your ear underwater and just know that they were somewhere around. But I like their breaching. Uh, but I just love humpback whales, um, probably because I just got to see them three months out of the year. And then they, again, this is living in Hawaii, they would head back up to Alaska for the rest of the time and then you have to wait again to the next season. <laughs> yeah. 
Very cool. I feel like Humpback is a, is a top contender for a lot of people. They just seem so magical. Yeah, just uh, and you know, going on catamarans, you know, out there, the cabs, um, you know, the uh, boat, the boat tours out there do a really good job. Um, where their catamarans, uh, they don't directly go to the whales; they keep their distance. And sometimes the cabs will come up next to the boat, and uh, they turn off the engines and just stay still. <laughs> And you have this little That's baby so humpback cool. whale next to you just checking you out. And then mom comes over and takes the kid away, you know, <laughs> you know, come over here, stay away from it. It's total Nemo. Don't touch the butt. <laughs> you know, and then the boat captains will wait till they've left the area and then turn their motor and leave those animals alone. Um, so I just yeah. think that's the neat thing. They're just uh, majestic, large animals, you know. It's kind of how I look at horses. I think horses are amazing too. I'm a little intimidated by them. I think it's size, <laughs> but um, I think they're neat animals. Yeah, absolutely. What does the ocean mean to you? Oh, the, for me, the ocean means everything. I, I, I've all my places I've lived have been 20 miles or less to the ocean, and it feels like it's my happy place. Um, I love being at the beach. Um, being out in the water, even if it's just swimming, um, it clears all my thoughts and everything. And then again, if, if I'm just here in Vero, down at JC Park or something, even if there's no waves and I'm boogie boarding or something, and I see a turtle, I'll be like, oh, there's a turtle. You know, or if I see a manatee swim by, you know, probably everybody around me goes, there he goes again. Or, you know, if I see a dolphin close to shore, a dolphin, you know, they're like, yay. But to me, it's pretty much everything. It, you know. Yeah, I love it. You got to keep that stoked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the best days are being on the water for this job. I think you know, being out on the boat, oh, yeah. with the critters. The rest of the part yeah. of the job is part of the job. <laughs> yeah, but you have—I mean, you have a very—you have the dream job for a lot of people. You definitely do. That's really awesome. Well, I think it's, I'm, I know I'm very fortunate and um, uh, I'm glad everything worked out the way it has over my 20 plus years, you know, um, worked very hard. Um, and I thank all the animals that I've worked with, but also all the people I've been exposed to and all my teammates, pre, you know, here now, but in the past, I've learned from everybody. Mm, yeah. And I still learn every day. I got to look up what pilot whales, <laughs> why are they called pilot whales? But every day you're learning something new. It's great. Oh, for sure. Well, if you're not, yeah, you got to learn and grow every single day. If not, what are you doing? Right? Exactly. All right. Next question. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funds, what project or projects up to three would wow. you want to do? If I was given a blank check, I would like to um, fund more rehab facilities throughout the state of Florida, but also to states that may not even have a rehab facility, um, just so that um, marine mammals have a place to go and hopefully be re released back out in the wild. But you got to realize that not all of them can be released back out into the wild. Either they have hearing problems or they were a calf that's stranded and can't go back out in the wild because it just doesn't know the wild because it was the baby when it's stranded. But some kind of 
that capacity would be great. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see, more more lookouts or ways to look out for marine mammals, uh, more education, I guess, in that aspect, in um, to new technologies to look after marine mammals, I guess. Mm-hmm. Good ones. I like um, it. And some stranding facilities don't have all the resources or people. So I guess if I could have a blank check, um, I would love to help out the other stranding groups in Florida um, so that they have the necessary resources and staffing um, to help them out at times. Yeah, that makes sense. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be a magical day out in the water and you had like an amazing interaction with um, a cetacean, or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. Well, the easier, the easiest answer to that, uh, I guess I have two stories, I guess. The easiest answer for this is, um, you know, obviously the animals don't know that you rescued them or disentangled them. Um, so there's several, I've been here almost 12 years this April. There's been more than a handful of little dolphins out here that have been entangled in fishing line or adult animals as well with um, uh, crab buoy uh, line, uh, just rope and buoy. Um, and as a team over the years um, with everybody else, we've gone out and disentangled them and then released them back into the wild so it's always cool to see them back out there a few years later or and just go, hey, that's Philly or that's Mono or um, that's Bowie. Uh, believe it or not, those are some of the dolphin names out there. Uh, they don't know their names, but we named them that depending on their entanglement. Um, or Solo out there, depending on her situation. It's cool that, again, they have no idea that you were the group or you, you're it, that this, you know, it's more of a good feeling to you and yourself. I know that animal. Oh my God, you know, it's been seven years. Uh, that's awesome to see you. Good job. Uh, or <laughs> in some of these animals in our history, they were females. So now these calves have grown up and have their own babies, you know, and that's really oh. cool. Like, wow. And it's not that the dolphins are indeed the dolphins in the Indian River aren't threatened or have endangered issues, but it's just cool to see that you know that it's they've had a baby since then. So that's the good stories there. Um, for the photo ID aspect, I guess uh, I'll just stick to my job. I'll go back in the past. <laughs> um, I'll just talk about stories in my current job. Um, the neat thing I think is um, our. Offshore permit, getting to see other species of animals other than Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. So for the first time, um, we've spotted, uh, what was it, July and September, two different groups, because we've done fin checks on them, of Atlantic spotted dolphins, as I mentioned earlier. But just seeing another cetacean species 20 miles offshore, when we first came upon them on the boat from a distance and saw them, oh, dolphins, big group, get ready, you know, start, get the cameras ready and start our data sheets. And then looking at them going, wait a second, these aren't your typical Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. Oh my goodness, we're on spotted dolphins. 
And for those that don't know, uh, spotted dolphins, their babies um, don't have any spots. And as they mature over time, they get the spots. So they're a smaller species um, than the Atlantic bottlenose dolphin. Um, they have a long rostrum or snout. And so they're very small, but it's, you know, it's really cool. If you Google Atlantic spotted dolphins, you'll see what I mean. The babies have no spots and the adults do. So it was like, woohoo! you know, instead of just always <laughs> studying bottlenose dolphins, we've got in our database, uh, 60 spotted dolphins in there. And then obviously hoping, depending on the season to, or getting lucky if pilot whales swim by or humpbacks, just getting different species into our database and then collaborating with other researchers. But to go back to the question, it was seeing those spotted dolphins and knowing that we had picked up a different species. It was like, woohoo, you know, yes. You know. That's so cool. It's a good Yeah. Feeling. Something new is always good. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? Well, there's a couple things. Um, please, you know, it sounds corny, but please recycle, reduce, reuse. Um, if you're fishing and you see dolphins swimming by you, please pull up your fishing line, take a break, eat your sandwich, check your cell phone. Somebody may have texted you, let the dolphins swim past your boat. Um, and then once you see that they're gone, throw your line back out and that just avoids any complications of them getting entangled in your fishing line by accident. Um, and anyways, the dolphins are gonna scare away your fish anyways. <laughs> uh, but it's just a safety issue there. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, if you see a dolphin or whale in distress, and if you're not sure, if it's in distress or not, please call your local hotline. Again, for Florida, it's 888-404-3922. And then the last thing is for the listeners here in Florida, um, my group um, applies for grants through the uh, Dolphin and Whale Specialty License Plates. If you see the Protect Florida uh, Dolphin Plate or Protect um, Wild um, or Florida Whales Plate, uh, my group um, applies for grants from the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute Foundation, and that's how it funds our work. So if you have one of those specialty license plates, thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. And if you have another plate for turtles or um, Florida panthers, that's awesome too, because those animals need help too. <laughs> Love it. Those are great. I also want to add in you can get involved, right? So you, do you still accept volunteers with your work? We do have a few um, uh, times where we do take interns depending on um, what we're looking for in volunteerships. And you can find that out on the um, FAU um, Harbor Branch webpage. Um, there's a tab that says um, volunteer or contact us. And that will go through the HR here at FAU Harbor Branch. So. It doesn't have to be with marine mammals. You may have an interest in aquaculture or something else here at Harbor Ranch, and they could direct you to the PI of that department. So, um, but we do take volunteers at times um, for strandings, education outreach, and um, photo ID um, departments. 
Amazing. I love it. So you can get involved with the work that you do or a different amazing project at Harbor Ranch, just filling out the volunteer form. Very cool. Oh, I have one more thing, if you don't mind, Kara. Yeah. Um, we have a speakers bureau here as well at Harbor Branch. And um, that's also, you can find that on FAU Harbor Branch. If you would like myself or any of my team members to come to your community um, here in Florida, or we can do it by Zoom as well um, to talk about dolphins or whales, um, please request us through the Speakers Bureau. There's an application on that website, and that's run through the Ocean Discovery Visitor Center. Um, so we always like going out in the community as well and talking. I love it. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your work at Harbor Branch, where's the best place to do so? Um, the same, same place, FAU Harbor Branch webpage. Um, find the Marine Mammal page. Um, you can click on it. You can check all our history, how many strains we've done since 1999, our uh, photo, uh, photo ID work, what species we uh, study in the river and offshore, and all our education outreach. There's some videos on there. And then there's also the link to the Speakers Bureau. And if you go to the staff on page for that under Marine Mammals, you'll find my name my work cell phone number and email. Um, it's easier to get a hold of me by email and uh, answer any question you may have. Very cool. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Yes, thank you, Kira. Thanks for uh, finding us and thanks for having me. <laughs> and thanks everybody for listening. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu hboi. That's fau.edu hboi. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.